Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Casey Merrill. We're outside the Nicholson Library at Linfield University. It's May 17th, 2021. Casey, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having welcome me. Back, welcome back to Linfield. Thank you. Uh, first question for you, most important question, is why wine? Oh, yeah, wine was kind of an accidental, uh, both an accidental job and then a job that turned into an accidental career, I guess, at this point. Um, I got, uh, I was a student at Linfield, I'm an alumni, I graduated in 2007, uh, and I spent Jan term of my senior year in New Orleans, which was fantastic, and I learned a ton, um, but I also spent all my money, and I came back super, super broke, uh, and I had a couple jobs on campus, but it was like, I need to step up the uh, income game a little bit, and the first job that I saw on the school website um, was a tasting room job, like part-time in a tasting room, and uh, one of the gals that I had been in New Orleans with, I knew also worked in a tasting room and at a restaurant. She was more connected in the community versus I was very connected on campus and in the campus community. Um, and it turned out the winery that was hiring was where she worked, so she kind of helped me to get the job, and that was like a senior year, spring semester job that turned into like a full-time summer job that turned, and you know, graduating in 2007 uh, was not the best year to graduate. Um, so having already uh, employment, I was not really looking to leave that employment to try and find different employment. And so I kind of weaseled it into a, like scrapped together a full-time job um, that was still considered temporary at that point, but it was like January and I had been there for a year. Um, and yeah, it kind of, it was like one step in front of the other and that turned into another thing and another thing. and. Now it's been like 13 years, 14 years. Ooh, it's longer than I intended for sure. I think you might be in it now. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was kind of hesitating to call it my career for a long time, and then I was like, I think once you hit the decade mark, it's maybe a, a career. <laughs> so let's back up for a second. You mentioned Linfield, oh, Linfield alum. Tell me about uh, why you chose to come Linfield and, and kind of your experience here and, and, and uh, what, what you took from it. Yeah, so I um, actually didn't even apply to Linfield until April of my senior year in high school, uh, which is a little late. Um, I had applied to, I think, six other, I'd been accepted at six other schools, and as I was visiting them, I just kind of hated all of them. Like, I went to each, there, well, there were some I really liked that I was like, this is not like financially viable uh, choice. Like, Pepperdine is beautiful and Malibu would have been lovely, but the student loans would have been a little bit uh, probably too aggressive. So I got to this point where I was like, okay, I don't want to go to any of these schools that I've been accepted to except for maybe Oregon State, but I don't really want to be at a school that large. So maybe I'll just do that for you know a semester for a year and then figure out what I'm going to do next. And uh, my very exasperated, I'm the oldest child and my very exasperated um, parents were like, 
let's just take you to a couple of schools nearby that you can use as like a, a gauge. Uh, the first one was Willamette. I have what I like to refer to as my most recent and final temp temper tantrum of my life at Willamette. I was like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to walk around. I don't want to do this. I was like objectively an awful, awful person for that entire like two hour tour. I feel to this day really bad for the poor woman that had to give me a tour that day. Um, then I got a little exasperated and by the time my mom was like, can we just like, we drive by Linfield all the time. I went to a small private school and so we played at like Dayton and Amity and a bunch of the small towns out here. So we're kind of constantly driving through here anyways. She's like, will you just stop at Linfield, just walk around and see, like it'll help you make a decision. She's like, I will stay in the car, I don't care. And I was like, at that point, I think exasperated enough with myself that I was like, sure, fine. And it was like a beautiful sunny day and everyone's like walking around outside. And it just like the energy of the campus was like so inviting and welcoming that I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I could do this for a year and figure out what I want to do. And um, Janet Sasaki was my admissions counselor who is still in McMinnville and still a wonderful person that I run into. I mean, I spent like, again, three hours with her in one day and she has never forgotten me. <laughs> She's incredible. Um, and yeah, within like a week, they had put together, like uh, they had accepted me and put together a financial aid package that like matched what I would have gotten at Oregon State. And so I was like, if I'm gonna spend a year, like this is a much more pleasant environment. And then once I was here, I was able to do such a wide variety of activities and um, study such a wide variety of things that I was like pretty, I mean, I, I loved it pretty immediately, so. Tell me about some of those, some of the activities, some of the things you participated in here and, and, your, and about your kind of major study. Yeah, so I, um, I studied, I ended up graduating with a degree in economics and studio art and a minor in French. Um, I was in, I was a Phi Sig, I was in sorority. Uh, I worked for the activities board. Um, I had some kind of random on-campus jobs. Uh, I was a note taker. That was probably my favorite job. <laughs> I'm still like pretty type A, so um, I think that was that was really fit for my personality. Um, but yeah, just being able to, especially my brother went to Oregon State, which is also a great school. But you know, to get to the classes he wanted to take and to the things he wanted to learn, he had to jump through all these hoops. And for me, it was like I could just do them. You know, like having the like the ability to have a double major and a minor and graduate in four years and study abroad. The study abroad thing was also huge. Um, Linfield, knowing that Linfield would pay for your first ticket to study, I guess not study abroad, study off campus, um, was, a, was a huge incentive. And then when I decided to do a French minor, they would also pay for that. So I went to France for six months, I was in Australia for a month, and then I did a month in New Orleans as well. So I got to really take advantage of all of these different things that there's just absolutely no way I would have been able to like pack all of that into four years, I think, at a larger school. So before this, this tasting room job opportunity came, did you have any experience with wine, any knowledge of wine, any interest? Yeah, I mean, interest, yes. I was like freshly 21. I was most certainly interested <laughs> in wine. Um, when I was in France, the, I, was, I studied in the south of France, and part of, it was very much an immersion program. It's like you sign a language contract, you're only speaking French, and they really do, they did a fantastic job of, of really making you kind of a part of the community and really helping you to kind of understand what French culture is all about. And there was a wine class that we were able to take as part of that. And so that was the extent of my wine knowledge was like tasting wine and being like, this is nice. Um, 
you know, buying it at the grocery store, I would, you know, splashing out on like a $15 bottle of red or something. Um, but that, it was, it was very, you know, casual. I was, I was pretty intimidated just going into the tasting room because I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing and should not be here, but got over that eventually. <laughs> Tell me about that first job and, and about what the kind of transition from college into the working world was like and, and about getting past that kind of intimidation factor around wine. Yeah, it was, I mean, I worked with like the most lovely group of people ever, which was probably the only reason that I was able to kind of persist through that. Like I'm pretty introverted by nature and I have had to learn skills to kind of present as more extroverted, I guess, which working in a tasting room is really important. Like you have to be the person to strike up the conversation to initiate, working in sales in general, you have to be able to like initiate a conversation and um, put people at ease. Like if you're feeling uncomfortable, it's really easy to make somebody else feel uncomfortable and learning those dynamics, like that's just all interpersonal stuff. And I, I had the support of, you know, really cool people in the cellar that were able to like explain what was going on with the wines and why things were the way they were in a way that gave me confidence in my knowledge and my ability to speak about it. And then coworkers in the tasting room that were just like, just really great people that were supportive and you know, we're like, no, you're doing a good job. Like, no, that was okay. Like, yes, you can answer the phone. And it's okay if you don't know the answer to somebody's question. I was like, so scared of the phone. I feel like that's kind of a, maybe at the time it was like a pretty classic thing for like a 21 year old to be like, I don't talk on the phone. Like, what do you mean? Um, so yeah, when they, they like locked me in an office and they were like, you need to call all of the club members with expired credit cards. I was like, this is my worst, <laughs> this is my worst nightmare. Are you kidding me? Um, so that was like a real, fast track into like, yeah, you, it's like sink or swim. Like you, you either, you do it and you don't die. And it's like, great, okay, I can, this is maybe not as bad as I thought. What appealed to you about the work? Um, I mean, a, a lot of things, like part of it was like economic security to a degree. I mean, I had so many friends that were like, have, like they were lucky to find an unpaid internship. Um, so having a job, I was just like kind of wanted to hold on to it super tightly. But I also noticed pretty quickly that wine is like learning about wine is kind of a moving target in the sense that you're like the knowledge is always shifting. People are always learning more. And like with most things in life, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Um, which is really, a, I'm a very like process oriented person. I really like figuring out how things work and why they work the way they do. And in the wine industry, I mean, there's just a myriad of ways to do that from the actual winemaking of it all to understanding like in the direct to consumer field, like understanding like buying trends and how people think and what makes a good tasting room experience to marketing and the, even the wholesale end of things is like, there's just so many different puzzles to solve. And that was always really appealing to me. I'm curious about your wine, your education in wine. Tell me about learning. You mentioned the kind of the rabbit hole of you learn more and you need to learn more and you need to learn more. Tell me about learning wine and about at what point you felt confident talking about wine and explaining wine to people or explaining, you know, yeah. to customers. That's so it's, I mean, that's a process. I think like there were a few different benchmarks, you know, I, I don't have like specific memories of the instance, but I do remember the feeling 
this when I was still in my first job of like having a conversation with somebody of an older generation than I that I, you know I assumed everybody that walked in the door knew more about wine than I did um, which was probably a fair ass assessment for a while but then having that moment like momentary realization that was like oh I just taught somebody something they didn't know like that's such a cool feeling um, and that definitely gave me like a little bit of confidence but um, really it took I mean a lot of years I worked in tasting rooms for like three years about um, and then went and I went to New Zealand to do harvest my first harvest um, which was a hot mess um, but really I mean it was fun it was a great experience I was a I was a shit show um, to, is probably the technical description for my behavior um, and then came back and I, I did a number of harvests but it was probably probably like my third my third harvest I did in the lab which was another like diving straight into something that I just like didn't know anything about and felt really unqualified for but learned so much about um, that I started to realize how much I had really accumulated in terms of the knowledge like I think I kept putting myself in situations where I was vastly unqualified and did and had had so much to learn that by the time I, you know, I repeated that over and over in these different circumstances, that by the time I went back to something that I had kind of already done, I was like, oh, I, okay, wow, I've actually like collected a lot of knowledge, you know, like back when I was on familiar footing, I was like, oh, this is a different, like the territory looks different, I guess. So let's talk about the, the harvest. So well, yeah. First of all, what was the inspiration to, to go from tasting room, leave that environment to go out into the world and do a harvest? Yeah, I, I, it was really kind of knowledge driven. I was at a point where I felt like I had learned a lot, but I still didn't really like understand, not how wine was made, but like I didn't really understand wine. And I was like, I really want to get my head around this process and how it works. Like, again, it's like, I really want to solve this puzzle or at least have a better sense of like what the puzzle looks like. And it's much harder to do that when you're not in it, when you're not in the cellar. And so I wanted to do a harvest, but I was um, very concerned that I was not, I didn't know what I was doing, and so I was going to be bad at it. I do not like being bad at things, um, particularly like in, the, in front of other people. Um, and harvest is a gauntlet. And I knew that if I did harvest in Oregon or in the valley at a winery, then, um, if I was bad at it, people that I know or that knew people I knew would be like, oh, wow, she's a, she's a mess and she's terrible at this. And I did not want that. And my friend Chris, who's actually the one that I think connected us, um, told me, they'll hire anyone in New Zealand. You should go there. And I was like, okay. Uh, so he actually connected me with the winery that he worked, he had worked at in New Zealand. Um, and it turns out they would hire anybody and they did. Um, they hired me for a lab position. It was a, for New Zealand standards, very small winery. It's big for Oregon, but there were like three interns. And so I was the lab intern, which meant mostly I was just doing sampling, which is like, it's pretty hard to mess up. <laughs> um, that's a good entry level position for anybody looking to get into the winemaking side. Like doing sampling and processing samples is like really fun the first like three or four times you do it. And then you're like, okay, this is, you're just like walking through a vineyard, you're crunching up some grapes, and then you're like sticking probes in juice. It's, it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> so. So you mentioned um, sort of that you, you 
got, you wanted to get away just in case you were a mess. Yeah, uh, tell, yeah. So tell me about that. Tell me about the experience of being in New Zealand and tell me what the best and worst parts of that experience. I fell in love with New Zealand and I still like if um, anybody called me up and were like, you have 10 days to be here, but we have a full time job for you. You can live here and work. I'd be like, bye everybody I've ever known and loved. <laughs> like, <laughs> come visit me. Um, yeah, it was it's it was amazing. So I was in Blenheim, which is on the north part of the South Island uh, in Marlborough, which everybody knows for Sauvignon Blanc. Um, most of the world Sauvignon Blanc, I think that uh, might need to be fact-checked, but I think most of the world Sauvignon Blanc comes out of there, um, or at least a majority. But they also make some other super cool wines. They make um, a lot of Pinot. There's some aromatic wines, a little bit of Syrah. Um, and it's just like the, I, I, the culture, the people, like it's beautiful. I just, I fell in love with everything about it. The winemaking team I worked with like worked kind of fast and loose, but in kind of a good way. They made beautiful wines. We also made, most wineries in New Zealand make like maybe three different varietals, like working with three different varietals. Um, we made Sauvignon Blanc, Riesling, Pinot Noir, Sparkling, and Gewürztraminer. I think that's all. I can't believe I, it was 11 years ago. I cannot believe I remember that. But, um, you know, you got a chance to work with a lot of different fruit from kind of all over, um, all over the region and taste a bunch of different things. And because it was a smaller team, it was like a little more casual. Um, and you got to kind of see a lot more of the process. I was in the lab, in the lab kind of doing the pretty basic stuff. Um, so it was really, I mean, mostly what I learned was just like what it was like to work in a cellar. I wouldn't say I, I didn't realize how much I had learned until I did subsequent harvest, I guess. Um, probably the, the low point was, and I, it was, it was a pretty low, <laughs> It's a really funny story looking back, but it was pretty low at the time. Uh, I was deacidifying some Sauvignon Blanc, which is also very like LOL. Like Sauvignon Blanc is so acidic, and yet some of it is still deacidified before it gets to market. Um, and the winemaker, the winemaker was out. One of the interns was at lunch. I think it was one me, one of the other interns. I think there was a limited number of people in the building, and the assistant winemaker was like, "I gotta run." Here's this job note. You gotta do this, like mix the tank, pour this in. Just pour it really. Just make sure to pour it in slowly. Like you'll be fine. I'll see you later. And I was like, okay. Uh, so I, you know, like weigh out my my ad and take it up to the tank. And this is fermenting Sauvignon Blanc. So there's some bubbling that is happening. Um, and what I did not know is that the reason that you add this product very slowly to fermenting wine is because it is like it's, it's like shaking up a bottle of soda pop. Like it will just continue to foam and foam and foam if you add it too quickly. Um, and I did not dump it in. I added it slowly. I thought I was adding it slowly. I was adding it nice and slowly. And then I kind of kept, um, apparently I sped up at some time in the process to the point that I saw like this, the level of the wine in the tank was rising. And it would kind of rise and fall and rise and fall and then it was rising and then it wasn't falling and I was like, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. And so I did what I thought was a reasonable choice and I put the lid down and tried to put my body weight on it, um, which resulted in wine spewing out from the, I mean, I was, st 
soaked in it. I was hi fully hyperventilating. I don't know why, but my brain, I mean, I was like on edge the whole harvest because I was like, again, don't like being bad at things, was pretty regularly bad at things. Um, so the stress level was already pretty high. And so I was fully having a panic attack. And I was like, they're going to kick me out of the country because I'm like, just, I don't know what. It was not rational. Um, but then I hear the head head winemaker, his voice being like, What's going on? I can barely talk. I'm hyper, like I'm just, <gasps> like it was so bad. Um, so the, the thing you do in these instances, which I'm now very familiar with, is you have to release some pressure. The best way to do that is with a bottom valve, which is what the winemaker did, um, which resulted in him also being completely covered in Sauvignon Blanc. So by the time like I heard him, he was like, are you okay? Like what is, and I was like, ow, ow, like, you know, and I just looked down and Al is dripping and I am dripping and he was not happy. Um, but it did not get worse after that. That was as worse as it, as it got. Um, yeah, so deacidifying wine is, you should just do it really slowly. That's my, that's my tip. Um, that's really, it's a really long story, but it was a very low point. <laughs> I think that was the lowest point probably in winemaking. But they didn't kick you out of the country. They didn't kick me out of the country. And like, I pretty immediately was like, why did I think that I was gonna get deported? Like, it doesn't really make sense. I also thought, you know, when it's foam, it looks like you're losing, you know, like hundreds of gallons a minute and you're not, it's mostly foam. You don't actually end up losing that much wine, especially when you like look at the bigger picture, but I was not in a position where I was thinking about the big picture. I was like, well, I guess I'm leaving the country. Uh, never gonna let me back in. Uh, but they let me back in, which was great. They did not kick me out and they let me back in, so, yeah. So at the end of that harvest, were you thinking in terms of, were you thinking in terms of a wine as a longer term thing yet? And if so, no. what were you, okay. So. No, I was like, I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna get another job. I had been running a, t a different tasting room um, when I left and I was like, I'll go back, probably get another tasting room manager job. Um, but I wanted to travel, my intention was to travel a little bit, so I had, um, uh, I stayed, I did a you know, road trip up the East Coast. I went and stayed with a friend in Mexico for a few weeks that was living down there. Um, and then I came back and was like, oh, it's August and I'm, this is like, a, I guess a trend, it's, I'm broke and I need a job. Um, and I guess it's harvest time, so I might as well do harvest again. So, because I mean, harvest is such an, once you do it once, it's so easy to jump back into because it's like, I can just work for five months, take a month off, and then like work again for five months somewhere else. This is great. Um, so I got uh, another job working a harvest um, in the Willamette Valley, actually with uh, the same friend Chris that sent me to New Zealand. Um, I was like, you sent me somewhere, like now you have to hire me because clearly if you're willing to vouch for me, you should probably hire me. So I worked. Um, I was working with him, again, just like kind of as an intern, but much bigger Oregon wine. I was working for ERAF. Um, so larger winery, a lot more processes in place, um, which like as an analytical, very organized person, I was like, this is my skill set. Um, so I ended up sort of haphazardly being put in charge of red fruit receival, which basically meant like there's, you know, trucks coming in constantly. There's people unloading the fruit and you have to keep, you know, it's like different fruit from different blocks of different vineyards constantly coming in throughout the day. And it's not necessarily getting processed in the order it's coming in because different things have to go to different size tanks. You know, again, it's just like logistical puzzles, which I love. Um, and 
so I was like, yeah, I can this I can totally do. Like keep this here, put that there, let's bring this next. Like, and I love bossing people around. So it was like a great fit. And I was like, oh, I might not be bad at this. Like actually it was it was a total 180 from my experience in New Zealand. Like it was super, super fun. And I got to work with a couple Kiwis that were um, that were here for that harvest. And I just had a great time. Like I, I really, like it's, it's so, I mean, I get a lot of satisfaction about doing a job that I feel like I'm doing well. And that was an experience where I was like, oh, I feel like I'm, I'm doing this really well. Like I'm an asset to this team, which I, I enjoyed a lot. And I had certainly not felt like that at the last harvest. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll do this a little bit longer. And the more you meet people that are in the cellar, I mean, it's a very, um, like when you're doing harvest, it's such a communal experience, both in terms of your team that you're working with, but also just like everybody in the valley that's doing harvest. And you meet internationals and people that are traveling around and you get all these connections and you're like, oh, you sound like you're from a cool place. Like, I wanna go there and work. Um, so I definitely got at that point, like pretty into the, the idea of like traveling and making wine. Yeah. So what was next? Um, so I'm, I'm trying to remember. Um, I, 20, that was 2010. Yeah, so I ended up working, uh, I went back to a restaurant that I had been working at, Nick's Town Cafe. Uh, I had been like doing some hostessing and some barbacking, and so I went back and I think I was waiting tables a few nights a week and I was working at a clothing store on Third Street a couple days a week and then I got a job working in a cellar for like the off season. It ended up that their winemaker was leaving at the end, or their assistant winemaker, cellar master, I can't remember, was leaving at the end of harvest. They needed somebody, but they weren't really sure if they want, like what they wanted to hire for full time. So I was like, perfect, I don't know what I want right now. I will just like come and work. So I worked there basically between harvests. And I had like, I think I filed like nine W-2s that year. Like it was one of the, it was, insane like my taxes have never been that complicated I'm sure I hope I hope they'll get more complicated but uh, they're not now um, but I did that and then I went to archery summit and did harvest at archery summit and then I wish was it was it was a fantastic experience the team that I worked with was it was amazing amazing group of people um, and yeah I did that, and then and I went back there a couple times. From there, I went back to New Zealand, back to Oregon, back to New Zealand, back to Oregon, then to Australia, and then back home. And that was it. That's like the truncated version. It's pretty incredible. It's a lot, it's a lot of harvest in a short amount of time. Yeah, I mean, you can crush two. I had friends that were doing three a year, and I was like, that's in. To me, that defeats the purpose. Like, yes, you can kind of learn a lot, but you don't get the full experience because you end up having to cut one off to do the other at some point. Um, I was also like super grateful the the in-between time I had working at, at, it was at our steward in town and working with Rob, it was the first time I had been able to see sort of what happens after harvest, like put everything in context and it really made, I think me a more informed like harvest employee, I guess, or a more informed seller hand during harvest because I had a better sense of the direction everything was going in and what else was kind of happening in the winery so um yeah it was a it was it was super fun but two isn't it's again you get like a month off i mean i would work at that point i had enough experience that people were willing to keep me on for longer so i would usually start a few weeks earlier help with bottling wrapping up the previous vintage you know doing a little bit more training with other interns managing 
Um, and then you work five, six months, you get a month off, and then you work five, I mean, it's, and you're traveling, you know, you get to see a lot of the world, um, meet a lot of cool people. So, super worth it. So at this point, were you thinking you were gonna be a winemaker? No, I've always been more, well, I guess maybe not always, but once I realized wine could be a career, I was more interested in the general management side. Like, I like the big picture. Um, we've established, like, bossing people around and organizing things. Um, I was, and I also realized pretty early on that there were a lot of really intelligent, experienced people with winemaking degrees that weren't getting full-time jobs even as like seller hands. So I was like, okay, this is not, like I'm just gonna get bumped for somebody with a degree pretty quickly. Um, and it's hard work, like my back was pretty messed up, um, probably because like the whole idea of lifting with your legs and not your back hadn't like fully sunk in yet. Uh, do recommend that. Um, so I was at the point where I was like, this is not something I can do long term. And for me, based on my experience, I felt like going back to the sales and marketing side was probably a fast, like a more efficient track towards general management than the seller side of things. But I wanted to always have a connection to it and I, I loved, I mean, I loved working in the seller. Like it's a really, there's a lot of camaraderie um, and it's just a, it's a great experience. So I always wanted to have that connection and to me general management was a nice way to kind of span, I guess, both of those and yeah. So in those in those travels and all that the time kind of harvest hopping, what were some of the some of the biggest things you learned, the most important things you learned along the way, and what were some of the things you kind of brought with you into the into the next part of your career? In terms of wine. Mm -hmm. Well, in terms of anything, I guess. Yeah. Um, I guess. I mean, there was a number of different things. I think. I think that like, uh, there's a humility that you learn because you learn. You, you, right as soon as you're like, oh, I know how to do this, you go somewhere else and they do it differently and it's not worse, it's not better, it's just a different way to do it. And you're like, okay, nobody actually knows. There's not, there's not a, like a rule book for this. Um, so you learn some humility about the process and I think about like work in general, like there's, it's like a terrible expression, but like there's a lot of ways to skin a cat, you know, like when I don't recommend skinning cats, I love cats, um, but there's so many different ways to approach challenges and problems, both like interpersonally as well as just like in how to make wine. Um, diversity of opinions is, and, and I learned a ton about communication, like more about communicating than I thought. Like I had never considered winemaking to be, there was like a running joke this winemaker I used to work with would say that like, because he would laugh at people that wanted to be winemakers, which is great. Um, but he would say, like, winemaking is, um, what did he say? It was like 30% logistics, 60% cleaning, and like 10% winemaking. And I was like, that's pretty accurate, you know? Um, and there's just, because everything's happening, I mean, you're working 12 hour shifts, typically six days a week. Um, so you're, you're kind of, I mean, there's a lot of adrenaline, so you're, you're really energized and it's fun and you're moving around a lot, but you're also doing a lot of both like long-term and short-term problem solving. So I learned a ton about effectively communicating with people 
and making sure that like what you're saying is what they're hearing um, or what is being told to you that you're hearing what that person is trying to communicate with you. And you have to do it quickly and you have to do it efficiently. You have to make sure everything's on the same page. Um, it was actually like when I went back into the sales and marketing side, I, that was like, I mean, it was like reverse culture shock in a sense where I was like, oh my God, we're having another meeting about this. Like guys, we can, we can wrap this up a lot quicker um, because I was very used to the communication style and the seller being a little bit more direct. Like nobody has time to mess around. Like you don't have time to like clarify what somebody thought you meant when you said X, Y, Z. It's like, no, 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 what, what needs to get done? You know, how do we do that? So I, that's probably the biggest lesson I learned and it's been like the most valuable thing that I took away on a professional level. On a personal level, just like I met so many wonderful people that I'm still in touch with that are, I mean, I wouldn't say like all over the world, but like in other countries, which is, is pretty outstanding. Were there any other notable notable places or favorite places along the way that you traveled or, or favorite experiences? Oh, that's tough. I mean, all of them were amazing and wonderful. I loved, I mean, I went back to Blenheim three times, which anybody that has ever been to Blenheim is like, really? Um, it's a funny little town, but I loved it. I um, there was this really great balance of like work hard, play hard. Um, and this, I, I mean, I love wine. I love the Oregon wine industry. I think that one of my critiques of it is a, that people approach it oftentimes, I think this is also just a Pinot Noir thing, as like capital A art. Um, and this idea that this is my art, this is my expression, and I'm like pouring my whole heart and soul into it, which is wonderful, but like, this is also my career and my job and I want to have a life outside of that. And I found that there was just such a good work-life balance um, in the, at least the Marlboro um, wine community. Um, I went working in West, I worked in Western Australia, which is a trippy place. Um, it's stunningly beautiful. I don't think I would live there, but I'd love to go back and travel. I mean, like the most amazing beaches I've ever seen. You know, I spent six weeks in Southeast Asia on my way there because it's a really efficient stopover um, when you're going that far. And, you know, I got to, like, I got scuba certified in Thailand, which was not an experience I ever thought I would have or really was pursuing. And um, I made kind of like a spontaneous, which is not like me at all, but a spontaneous decision to just like do it. Well, I took, a, I took one class and I was like, I'm hooked. I love this. Like I discovered this total love for diving that I had no idea that I had. Um, yeah, and you know, and I've been able to not necessarily on winemaking travels, but I was, you know, I went back to France a couple of years ago and stopped in Bone and got to see, uh, you know, a woman that I had met in New Zealand that had also come to Oregon to do harvest, and I hadn't seen her in like four years and catch up, and it was just so, you know, see her life and meet her cat, <laughs> um, and it was, you know, it's all those experiences that I, I think I still kind of carry with me to to degrees and to certain degrees, yeah. Was coming back to Oregon always the plan? No, Ori Oregon is the place. So I grew up outside of Portland. Um, I've, I, I joke that I like keep going away and I keep, I keep going really far away and coming back. I've always been kind of trying to leave, um, but I haven't successfully like permanently left ever. Um, you know, all the schools I applied to besides Oregon State for college were all out of state because I was like, I'm not staying here. Um, and then I ended up an hour away. I was like, <laughs> nailed it. Um, and 
Yeah, I mean, there's there are a lot of other places that I'm really interested in in living, but at this point, like I own a, a house here, um, and it's a really it's an it's nice because the feel like the community has has changed and grown and evolved so much during my time here that it's kind of I think it was more stagnant. It would have been easier to leave or to stay away. Um, but it's been really cool to see the influx of different people um, in in our, our wine community out here. New businesses popping up, it's it's pretty awesome. So when you came back for the most recent time, I suppose, yeah. how did you get to where you are now? What was this, kind of the process of coming back to Oregon and, and getting to Winterly? Yeah, so I came back um, from, I'd been in Western Australia in early 2014 for harvest down there. Um, because I'm sure people that are listening to this are relatively wine savvy, but opposite seasons. So harvest in the Southern Hemisphere is in February, March-ish usually, or starts in February, March. Um, so I was gonna just work a summer job and then do maybe probably one more harvest in Oregon, then I was gonna go back to New Zealand for one last one, call it good. Um, and then kind of was like, I'm a little tired, so I decided to just extend. I was working at a tasting room over the summer, um, and they were kind of like, we can offer you a little more money if you're willing to stay through like November. And I was like, this is a pretty cush job. I, can, I guess I can do that. Um, so I did that, and then I was still going to go back to New Zealand, and then an opportunity within that organization was like potentially going to be available for like at the time kind of what my dream job was. It was a combination of doing um, hospitality, but mostly market marketing support as well as like um, distribution support. So doing a lot of basically hosting anybody that was coming from the distribution world to Oregon. Um, so it was going to be more of a Monday through Friday type situation, but really kind of getting to work with a lot of departments. Um, and I kind of had to decide if I wanted to like risk it for that job potentially being created um, or say I'm going to take myself out of that and I'm going to commit to going back to New Zealand and I decided to risk it for the job. They didn't, the job didn't end up coming to fruition. Um, but so I and I'm not, I don't regret anything. I think that I was kind of ready. Like I knew I was a little bit ready to just chill. I mean, it was going to be my last harvest and it was going to be more about like doing it one more time than like being super excited about it. Um, so I just started applying for, I mean, I was in a temporary job and it was like getting into the winter, which means hours get cut. And um, I started looking around for other positions and a role at Winderly popped up as as being, or was going to be open. Um, the, the guy that was running their tasting room was leaving and I knew him and I had known the owners of Winderly. I had, I had worked random event weekends and stuff for them and I had always been like, these they seem like really solid business people really um, like a well-run operation like I'd always been been interested in working with them and so when Reed was leaving I was like hey you know do they have anybody in mind for your position I'm kind of interested in it and he was like you should totally apply let's get lunch we like had lunch and a bottle of like bubbles because it's the wine industry so you you have a lunch meeting and you have a bottle of gruets <laughs> um, kind of absurd but I just started to learn more about it and interview it and I was super excited about the opportunity so um, and I got the job so I got hired there in 20, early 2015, and I started as the tasting room manager and kind of took on some more of the marketing pieces, And but I've been there for six, six and a half years, I guess now, which is crazy. I mean, before that, the longest job I'd ever had was like 22 months or something. 
like, but I, the, and which definitely came up in the interview process. It was like, so we're noticing a lot of uh, jumping around here. Um, but what I had told them was like, look, I'm, I'm all of these short-term jobs were things that I had said, I'm not willing to commit to this. Like, if I'm going to commit to something, I'm going to commit to something. Um, and it turns out I committed longer than I maybe had intended to. But I was able to work through, you know, it's a small company, but I was still able to kind of work around um, or work up through the organization. So I took on the broader direct sales scope, um, more of the marketing piece. And then as of just about two years ago, I took over um, national sales. So Winderly has never had a national sales manager. Um, the owners had always managed that, but we were kind of getting to the point where it needed a little more attention to grow. Um, and I was like, you know what, let's do this more time. Pretty unqualified for this, but I'm going to just jump in and um, uh, see what see what comes of it. So I've learned a lot. I definitely have a lot. I, I don't have any sense of mastery over it. I am most certainly not an expert in national sales. I still know much more probably about the winemaking process and about the DTC side of it. But having that knowledge base has I've been able to kind of lean on that where I don't necessarily know that much about distribution. Um, I mean, I know more now, but working with distributors, they kind of don't care if you don't know that much about the distribution process, if you know about the wines. And if you can speak to the wines, I mean, I would do ride widths with sales reps and they're like, wow, you really know the product. And I was like, first of all, you need to raise your standards. <laughs> Second of all, like, yeah, I made wine for like five years, you know, like I, I know what I'm talking about, but I think a lot of Unfortunately, and this is not, I don't think, because of Oregon producers, I think this is because of larger producers, some of them, you know, importers, whatever, there's sales reps that just like, they don't know anything about winemaking or anything about how wines are made, um, which gave me an advantage that I didn't necessarily think I would have um, in this, this world. So tell me about in your role as a national sales manager then, what, what does your what does your job entail? What does what does a typical day, week, month look like for you and, and how does how does it all how does the kind of year go for you? Yeah, it's um, totally different now than it was two years ago. So you know, pre pandemic, uh, you know, my expectation was that I would be traveling between um, like twenty and well, 20-ish weeks a year, probably. Um, so on the road a lot, uh, and that's going to be a combination of like trade shows. So most distributors will have a show where they'll have all their producers there with a number of the products so the buyers can come out um, and kind of taste everything in a concentrated place, um, and then market work. So those are usually two to three day visits where you're working with a different sales rep every day. Sometimes in the same, you know, if it's San Francisco, it's kind of the same region. If it's South Carolina, you're in three different cities in three days. Um, and you're, it's, they're called ride-alongs, and it's because you're in a car with a sales rep all day, visiting accounts, pouring wine for people. It's a great way to connect with your accounts directly and also to build relationships with the sales reps that are selling your wine. They end up learning a ton about your story, about the, bra uh, about the brand, about the, the story, about the wines, um, as well as just, like, having that, connection like I think it's always easier to sell something when you have a personal connection to it so um, and we work with I mean amazing sales reps like all of our sales reps that I've met are which is awesome because you're in the car with them for like eight hours <laughs> um, so it's, it's nice that they're all really lovely people um, now it's it's pretty different so uh, a lot of my colleagues do a lot of virtual tastings I haven't done that many we work with a lot of pretty small distributors um, I think that they 
tend to be pretty, I mean, they have small teams, so they're pretty focused on just getting out there and selling the wine. It's not necessarily as valuable for them to do these big calls. Um, so I've joked that my, my current job is just like an order processor and I've somehow become like the IT department at work. Um, somebody was like, are you the youngest there? I was like, absolutely not. I was like, no. Um, I just think, you know, I love, I love solving a problem and be careful what you're, what you're volunteering for and getting good at. Um, so, I, so yeah, my day to day now is a lot more, you know, I, I manage the website. Um, I do a lot of like digital outreach. Um, we have like an, an email newsletter program. I mean, we've taken opportunities during the pandemic. It, we, I, you know, I built a whole trade section on our website so that all of our distributors, all of our reps, our accounts can really quickly go by state and get all of the materials that they need. Like that was a huge asset. I built a bunch of these. I hadn't been in like PowerPoint in probably since college. And now I, had, now I have a Mac, so now it's Keynote. And I was like, uh, what is this? I've literally never been open on my computer, but I have all of these you know, massive presentations now that I've built that we can like pull the slides together. Um, this is helpful to having an art background. I do a lot of graphic design um, in different programs. And so having all of these um, presentations and these um, materials we you know we just have a whole a whole database now of stuff that we can we can pull that we've worked on building over the last year so so you talk about one of the things that you, you that your work does is basically sharing the story of Wonderly and, mm -hmm. and getting out there. So tell me about what is the story of Wonderly as you try to share it and how do you fit in with Oregon wine competition slash the rest of the Oregon wine community how, how do you fit in and uh, in, in terms of sales and in terms of kind of how, how is Winderly marketed? Yeah, so Winderly is, for Oregon standards, uh, kind of on the small end of medium or the large end of small. Uh, we make about 6,000 cases a year annually. Uh, I think this is on our website, but we are obsessed with sustainability in everything we do. Um, so that's always been kind of a core value of the company. It was started in 2006. So the Winderly Vineyard is in Dundee. It was originally planted in 74 as the Dundee Hills Vineyard. So it's one of the oldest vineyards in Oregon, um, or not Oregon, pardon me. It's one of the, the older vineyards in the Dundee Hills. We're right next to Marsh, um, M-A-R-E-S-H. So one of the founders, kind of original Dundee Hills property. Um, we are the third owners, but we're the first to actually make wine off the property. So historically, the vineyard had, the fruit had all been sold to various winemakers um, and brands across the north part of the valley. Um, but Bill Sweat and Donna Morris, our owners, they moved out here from New England with the intention of starting a brand with estate fruit. So that is, that Winderly was born in 2006. Um, the first kind of pillar of our sustainability was the farming piece. That's kind of the obvious place to start. So um, they converted to organics pretty quickly and then to biodynamics in 2009, which was a little bit more of a process. Um, we got our BD certification in, which is uh, Demeter Biodynamics uh, in 2015. Um, and then we also started to look, you know, during that process at what other types of sustainability we could pursue. So the building was built up to LEED standards. It is not LEED certified. A um, lot of like passive energy. There's solar panels on the roof. The, actually like two months ago, they finished um, paneling the rest of the roof with more solar. So we've like, it was like two and a half times the solar we had before. We're like, we should be entirely self-sustaining as far as energy goes. Um, but we also looked at something called B Corp certification, so that we are B Corp certified as, as of 2015 as well. That's another really big part of our business, and we, we see it as kind of 
where the the farming sustainability is captured in the in the Demeter certification, the business cert sustainability is really captured in the B Corp certification. So that the idea is that you're saying that your business their tagline is business is a force for good. So the idea is that you are um, pursuing profit, but you're also pursuing um, the priorities for like the people in the place, and that's the community both within your organization and outside of your organization. So really making sure that um, you know a sustainable business is one that is um, financially sustainable. So that is a core tenant of it, um, but it's also you know, businesses can really be doing good and it doesn't have to be just about profits. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So what kind of challenges, uh, from your perspective and your job, what kind of challenges are there to sell Winderly wine? Our price point, I mean, that's probably the biggest challenge with Oregon, generally speaking, um, is a premium product, um, a luxury good, if you will. Um, but that's where, you know, visiting people, just getting them to taste the wine makes a big difference. And I think as Oregon popularity is increasing, it's um, as people are knowing the region for wine, they're more willing to try something that's a little bit more expensive maybe than, they, than what they're used to seeing. Um, but yeah, it's, and I wouldn't, I mean, price is always a consideration. Um, so it's really also just about like getting opportunities to connect with people. And I, my ethos with sales, in, at least, um, is I like going for the low-hanging fruit. And I don't mean that in like a lazy sense, but it's just like, why push on a door that's like so heavy and so hard to open when there's essentially like endless other doors that might open a lot easier. You know, like I'm not going to beat somebody over the head to try and get them to buy wine that they're not interested in buying. I'm just going to say, great, like I hope you find something that fits for your program. I'm going to go talk to these people. You know, it's just like I don't want to make, like, it's not about me. I don't, it's, it's, I slap the microphone. Um, <laughs> you know, I, will, I want to make, because there's other people involved in this process. It's not just about me trying to sell this wine to this one human being. There's the distributor, there's the sales rep, there's people that are delivering it. It's like, I want everybody's, like I view my job as being like, I'm here to make all of your lives easier. Like, what can I do to help? So I try and keep that at the, the forefront. So obviously since you've, since you've been at Winderly and even since you've been in the position that the industry has grown in Oregon and, and, and I assume competition has gotten a little bit more difficult. So tell me about that. How do you sell wine? You know, how do you sell wine in a, in a crowded in a crowded marketplace? It's becoming more crowded. And how, how, where, where do you find the space for Winterly? Yeah, it's um, weirdly enough. My experience has been that it's been the opposite. Like as there have been more brands, and this is also it's a different story in the wholesale side versus the DTC direct to consumer like tasting room side. Um, on the wholesale side, the more Oregon brands there are, the more placement opportunities there are actually because. When there's one Oregon wine on the shelf, it's kind of maybe a little bit harder to sell. But when you're, when you have five, six, seven, it's now like a, it's now like a, a chunk of the book. It's now a section of the shelf. Like, um, I think it raises the visibility of the product and it makes it more. There's more people willing to carry it, which means it's actually easier to find the right fit for you. Um, you know, beforehand it's like okay, if 10% of the shop, this is completely made up numbers, but if 10% of the retail shops are interested in Oregon wine, now you have a smaller pool that you're trying to find the right fit with. When 60% of these retail shops want Oregon wine, you have a lot more to choose from. And even if there's a, a more competition, 
it's not even that. It's really just like more selection. Um, with tasting rooms, it's different because there are only so many places that people can visit in a day. And if an area is just becoming more densely populated with opportunities for people to taste and visit, um, you have to differentiate yourself in different ways. And I think that's where we've seen the industry move to more of an experiential um, model. You know, the tasting, the wines are always at the forefront and they're always the priority. But what we've seen is how important it is for customers to leave with a really top-notch experience um, and to really set yourself apart. And that's what people, you know, people are always talking about. It. And this is also like very much, you know, when you're looking at market work or market research, generally speaking, like um, Gen Z, millennials, like they are looking for experiences. And so there's a lot of conversations about how do we do something that's unique that really speaks to like who we are as a brand, as a winery, that really works for the wines that we're making. Um, whether that means having an element of food for some people, whether that means like being out in the vineyard for others or doing a hike or going the opposite direction saying like we're super casual, it's all stand up at the bar, drop in, whatever, you know, it's, it's just about making, I don't like, well, our owner doesn't like it when I use this word, but I use it a lot, like curating an experience that fits both your brand and your customers. So knowing yourself and knowing your customers really drives that decision, I think. And again, I don't think it's about um, competition. I think it's about selection. Like the selection is growing and it just allows people to pick something that is a better fit for them. You've given us a very nice description of your brand already. Obviously, you're very, very, very well tuned with that. Tell me about your customer. If that's something that's is so important to your work in terms of finding your customer and, and connecting with them, what, who is your customer right now, and, and has it changed? Yeah, we tend to Winderly specifically tends to index a little bit more female than the rest of the industry. Broadly speaking, the industry is um, older white men. Those are the people that have historically bought wine. Um, we're starting to see boomers age out of the category a little bit. That's been a trend for a while. Um, for Winderly, the the higher percentage, I mean, we're about 50-50, male-female, which is, like I said, kind of higher than the industry average from what I've read or been told. Um, so we're starting to look at that and try and capitalize on that. Um, the B Corp angle is something that we're trying to grow as far as like people that are searching for B Corps, not necessarily wine. I think wineries, generally speaking, and Winderly is certainly doing this, are starting to look at, instead of saying, how do we differentiate ourselves among people looking for wine? It's like, how do we bring wine into like a customer that's looking for B Corps? Um, or, you know, Remy Drabkin is a, is a great friend of mine and she and I talk a lot about like PR and stuff. And she's, instead of targeting wine publications with like an LGBTQ plus story, she's now looking at LGBTQ plus publications and targeting them with a wine story. And I think that flip is a super interesting way to approach the marketing and the storytelling um, and to find new customers. I mean, that's what everybody's kind of constantly trying to do. Find new customers, find new customers. Um, so yeah, I mean, our, our customer is a little bit different depending on what market we're in. Tasting room versus, I mean, our customer in Alabama is not our same customer as the customer in California um, or that comes into the tasting room. They're, they're different people. So we try and make sure that 
again, it's like a values first proposition. We're like, hey, this is who we are. Um, if that sounds cool to you, like come learn more. You know, we want to learn about you too. Um, I would say our demographic is probably like a little bit younger than the standard. We're probably closer to like the 55-ish, 50 to 55-ish average age. Um, but we're also seeing some younger customers starting to come in. We have some specific offerings for them that we're trying, you know, it's the, the kind of classic sales funnel. You want to introduce people to your brand and then kind of bring them along. Um, so we have some new, not products necessarily, but like positioning of products um, that we are trying to make available for people that like don't necessarily want to come out and buy a case of $65 Pinot Noir. Um, so it's, you know, it's always, we want to always be both looking at it and then also actively trying to refine it, I guess. So I want to talk about um, the Oregon industry a little bit more broadly now. Uh, tell me kind of, you were obviously hopping in and out of it for a while, but tell me what your kind of initial impressions were of, of Oregon wine and, and, and how they've changed, if, if at all, to now. That's, um, yeah, I don't know what my initial impressions of Oregon wine. I think because I knew Oregon wine first, I didn't really know how it was different until I started to learn more about wine other places. Um, so for me, I mean, it was kind of the default. It was like, it was all I knew. Um, to me, it was more like the, the industry and the, I don't, the industry and the personalities and the culture of it is like, to me, what's really fascinating. I think with Pinot Noir in general, it's a really finicky grape to grow and to make. It's low yielding. It's like energy intensive. It's not as forgiving with mistakes or poor decisions. Um, and so it attracts a certain type of person that wants to be involved in that. Um, which is, I think, where you start getting into this idea of like, my wine is my art, um, which isn't my favorite thing about the industry. I, I, I mean, we're not curing cancer, <laughs> like it's alcohol. Um, it's really fun, it's really interesting, but like it's not, and it's, you know, maybe changing some people's lives in certain ways, but like it's, it's not, you know, kidney donation. Um, and I think being able to travel it was really nice to see that not everywhere in the world kind of needs that reminder, um, but it was also good to see that reminder um, and just have it in context, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't know if that fully answers that question, but it approaches an answer. <laughs> has, has it changed in your mind since you, since you as your? I think so. I think just as the the number of people involved in it has both diversified and grown, it's been forced to change. I think I also just like don't care as much anymore. Like I've gotten older and I'm not like as tied up in the wine industry's identity being my identity. It's like you do you, I guess, um, which is healthy. I think, it's, I think it's healthy and good. But yeah, I mean, for a long time, and when I moved back to McMinnville, you know, I was 22 and uh, let's say there were not a lot of other 22 year olds living in McMinnville. As it turns out, there were not a lot of other 28-year-olds living in McMinnville. Um, so I had a lot of friends that were like older and married, some of them had kids. Um, and then you started to see these kind of waves of people coming up from California. And then there was a really interesting shift, I feel like maybe like, I don't know, five, five, six years ago, where a ton of people from the East Coast were coming out, which was super confusing until I started realizing that a lot of them sort of would have gone to California otherwise. Um, but they were deciding to come to Oregon instead. Um, and they have, 
you know, a diversity of experiences and backgrounds that make, I think, the industry more interesting because they're approaching things with those different backgrounds and thoughts and, and ways of doing, doing things, so. So you talked a little earlier about sort of how 2020 affected your own work life. Did you, how did you see it affect the industry, if, if, if at all, from your perspective? And, and what do you see as we kind of start coming out of the pandemic? What do you see sticking around from those changes? And what do you see kind of going back to normal? Yeah, I mean, 2020 was, was interesting. I, I mean, I was on a call this morning talking about the 2020 vintage and the smoke impacts. So it's, we really had a double whammy of like the pandemic changing the nature of work and selling as well as like, oh shit, now we also need to figure out like, you know, we've, we've been very lucky in the Willamette Valley. We really haven't had to deal with natural disasters affecting harvest. Um, Southern Oregon is like, hey guys, yep, it's been happening a while. We've been warning you, we've been telling you, like, thank you for your attention to this matter. Um, you know, work-wise, I am a big fan of remote work, especially being on the road. Like, I really enjoyed being able to like work at home a couple of days, like do some laundry while I'm catching up on emails, like just have a little bit more of that balance. Um, again, also like being a little more introverted than maybe your typical salesperson. Like, it's really nice to be home and working. And I think that there has been this is like on a micro level, and, and this is not just my experience, but a lot of people that I've talked to, like a lot more trust in from ownership or from managers towards the employees being able to just work independently, which has been fantastic. And I know that that's across many industries. Um, I think that for the, you know, the DTC side of the wine industry gets, um, I would say a little bit less respect than some of the other industries. You know, even just when I've described my history as being like, I've worked up through an organization from DTC to national sales. You know, that's not, I don't, like national sales, is sort of thought of as a promotion from DTC, but it shouldn't be, it's just different. It's different selling. Um, and I think that the DTC programs have started to get a little bit more respect. Like they've been on the cutting edge of marketing, of email blasting, of customer segmentation that other parts of the industry are kind of just now waking up to and having to pay attention to. And the pandemics put that, well, the reliance on DTC became very stark in the last year. Winderly was very lucky in that we were already, uh, and many wineries in Oregon in the Valley are more DTC focused, um, but it's been nice to see the DTC uh, section of the industry get a little bit more respect. You know, it's a lot of work. Um, it's different work, but it takes a skill set. And I think, you know, at the marketing and the targeting and the, the micro level that we think of as more traditionally like, challenging and informed work, but like being an effective salesperson on the floor in a tasting room is also challenging work that not everybody can do. Like I was very bad at it when I started and I learned skills that made me better at it. Um, and anybody can do that. You know, it's, it's an acquired skill that some people have in abundance early on and some people have to acquire over time. Um, so that's been a huge thing. Uh, and then with, I mean, the smoke impact, I think is super interesting because there was a, I would say widespread panic. <laughs> I would be an accurate description for everybody from winemakers to the sales department being like, what are we gonna do with this? Um, but I think it's a healthy process to go through in terms of figuring out how to message it and how to also maybe like 
people are kind of counting their chickens before they hatch, but in the sense of like assuming negativity, I guess, because it's a challenge up front and people are assuming it's gonna be a challenge at the end. And it might be, it might be worse than we think, but it also might be not nearly as bad. We're only just now selling the rosés from the vintage. They're being very, very well received. They're very delicious if you've not had any 2020 rosé. They're very juicy. The vintage in general was actually like looking to be a banner year um, because the yields were really, really low. We had a very, we had mild weather. I mean, it was gonna be a beautiful, intense, concentrated vintage. And I think you see that in the rosés. And I think we'll see what happens with um, the rest of the wines. So. What about as you look ahead for the Oregon wine industry? What, what, what comes next? What does, industry, what does industry look like down the road? Yeah, I mean, I think the, like the experiential piece of tasting room visits that we talked about, I think that that's just been turned up to like a 15 and expedite, like tremendous, like everything's moving faster. Everyone's like, okay, we're here. Like the whole valley essentially moved from like, some people were by appointment, some people, we were hybrid by appointment, and now it's like, everybody's by appointment, just just plan. All we're asking you to do is do a little planning. Uh, and that's been a fantastic, I mean, probably the best thing logistically to come out of the um, change in structure to visiting tasting rooms is, at least for the tasting rooms, for the businesses, like having things be by appointment is, you can do so much more when you know who's coming. Um, so a ton more experiences are being offered. Uh, on the wholesale side, you know, this is a conversation I'm having with a lot of uh, folks that I work with in terms of we don't know what it's gonna look like. I think market visits will be back, but not to the degree. I don't think there's even in three years that a national sales manager would be spending as much time on the road as they used to, just because we've kind of proven that it's not as necessary as we thought it would be. Um, it is, a lot of work on the distributor side. You know, when you visit, it's, it's work for everybody, but you know, the, that distributor is committing to spending, having one sales rep spend an entire day with one brand, you know? So it's, it's a lot of uh, like an intense resource allocation. And we, I think the wholesale side of things is hopefully starting to implement and will continue to implement a lot of the DTC strategies that we've seen in terms of email marketing and targeting and, um, staying connected with your customers without flying on a, like jumping on a plane and doing it face to face. Because I can send them emails, even just like a nice once a, once a month, like here's what's going on at Winderly, you know, versus like seeing them in person once a year. Um, so I think the, I think it'll be interesting to see what skills people will be looking for in national sales managers. Um, I mean, on the production side, again, with the smoke, like there's, um, there are some proposals for a lot more research uh, through Oregon State to look at to having like a smoke lab. We were talking about that on the call this morning. Um, so I think, you know, the industry will continue to grow and evolve and this is maybe just like sped up the pace a little bit for certain things um, and maybe like reprioritized some others. Um, but we'll see. It's hard. Who knows what next year will bring. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, what about as you look ahead for yourself? Uh, you mentioned um, you had slides of places you wanted to go, some things you wanted to do. What, what do you what do you see as looking ahead for yourself at Winterly and, and beyond? Yeah, I mean, like I said, like if New Zealand calls, I'm out of here. Um, that's my caveat. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm still interested in the general management side. I've been I've been very fortunate to have been 
given a lot of opportunities to experience a lot of different parts of the wine industry. Um, I don't, again, know everything or know all of them, but I feel like I have a solid foundation of, of the, from the production side. Viticulture is still a little bit of a squishier spot for me, but I feel pretty solid in the fundamentals of winemaking, the DTC side. I'm learning a lot more about national sales. Um, and so yeah, I'm, I'm starting to learn a little bit more about some of the business pieces. Um, but I'm just, you know, I like a challenge. I like um, learning and growing. And, and as long as I have continued opportunities to do that, then uh, it's hard to say, I guess, where I'll end up. Is there anything you, anything specifically you'd like to accomplish, any, any project or role or task that you're like looking forward to, something you really want to cross off your list? Ooh. That's a great question. Um, I'm doing some remodeling for my house. That's taken up like a lot of my mental bandwidth. I'm like, I just want new floors. Like really, that's what I really want is like all of this carpet gone. Um, that's like immediate priorities. Um, I don't know, it's been nice. I mean, during, I've always been like very, very focused on my career and being home the last 15 months, I've been able to be like, I'm like working in my yard a lot more. I have like a very, like I think beautiful garden that I spent a lot of time in. And um, I think just re like personally reprioritizing things has been a very valuable, it's been a valuable time for me in that sense, I think. So I don't know, I don't know what. Totally fair answer. New floors Here. first. <laughs> After I get the floors done, I'll start dreaming bigger. So much of your brain will be unlocked at that point. Right. I mean, like paint, picking paint colors. Like, I mean, I've, I've painted everything was white when I bought the place. So I've done a ton of the easy rooms apparently, and now I'm like, oh my God, like there's 25 different kinds of gray, like char like charcoal. Like, why are there this many choices? Um, so once I get paint samples, it'll free up a lot of the bandwidth in my in my brain. Yeah. So if uh, you were to ask your advice or words of wisdom to someone, especially let's say a Linfield graduate joining the wine industry, what would you tell them? Just like try, if you're interested in it, try it. Like get paid to learn. I mean, I people, especially when I was on the winemaking side, would be like, oh yeah, where did you get a winemaking degree? And I was like, yeah, the school of hard knocks. Like that's what I like. I got paid to learn this stuff. Like you paid to learn this stuff. So um, if you're interested in the wine industry, like try it. Um, there's a lot of ways to do part-time work. Like Harvest is such a good way to travel, even if you're not interested in wine. Like you can go and live in another country for four or five months. Like you usually, there's a lot of places that will give you like a year-long visa to, and so you can work at the winery, you can go work at like a coffee shop, you can do all these things and experience all these things through wine. Um, you know, tasting rooms will hire hire a lot of part-time people especially in the summer so if you're interested like just try it out but I would say I also know a lot of people that are already in the industry and feel like they're kind of afraid to leave it as if it's going somewhere um, so I would say my other piece of advice is like go do something else like it's not you can always come back um, you know the wine industry is always looking for like driven talented people um, and so there's opportunities and just chat and chat. And most people in Oregon in particular, like we're really lucky that we have such a collaborative community. Um, that's both for people that are in it and also for people that are interested in it. Like it's, people are actually really approachable and very willing to be resources. I mean, with the national sales stuff, I have, 
had to be like, I had finally gotten to a point in my career where I was giving more advice than I was getting it. And I, I very immediately had to be like, oh, I've got a lot of questions. <laughs> um, but you know, having the humility to be like, I don't know this, can you help? Like, can you give me some advice on this? I just, like two weeks ago, had to, I sent like four different people that I know and appreciate and have had had great conversations with, emails being like, I'm working on some stuff for the export market. Like, never done this like what are some questions I should be answering like what is nor like what are normal terms for an export order it's like I don't know that like I don't know what standard is like um, is this you know how do I know that this company is reputable like what are things I'm looking out for um, so just yeah it's it's you know no matter how much you know within the industry there's always going to be people that know more about certain things so just ask um, so I guess that's my long-winded advice <laughs> great, great advice for anything, I would yeah. All the questions that I have for you, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? Oh, I don't think so. Thank you yeah. so much for your time, for your answers, uh, for enjoying this beautiful day with us out yeah. here. We'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thanks. Oh, this, I, the one thing, drink more white wine. I think that there's this like idea that white wine is somehow like the weaker it's this idea, it's like like white wine is like the weaker sex of the red and white, it's not. I drink way more white wine. Like most people that work in the industry, you get to the point where it's like you just mostly drink white and pink wine because it's, it's easier. So drink more white wine, like I love white wine. It's good. I like it, team, team white wine. Yeah, okay. all right. it's not all sweet. A lot of it's just like dry and crisp and delicious. <laughs> thank you so much, we appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.